0: Hey everyone, please be advised that this episode contains discussions around spiritual abuse, religious trauma, and other sensitive topics. The content may be distressing or triggering for some individuals, so if you feel uncomfortable or find these discussions distressing, we invite you to prioritize your mental health and well being and consider skipping this episode. This is the Touchy Subjects Podcast. My name is Aaron Billings and I am your host. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the truth behind spiritual narcissism. And I have narcissism expert and registered psychotherapist, Stacey Sanderson. And we are going to be going in depth looking at narcissism, what the traits are, what the red flags are, and going even deeper into the spiritual realm with it. This is a phenomenal episode, and I know that it's something that everybody can learn from. So I hope you enjoy. We are back. Thank you so much for being here today on the Touchy Subjects podcast. Today's episode is going to be about spiritual narcissism and I have a guest, her name is Stacy Sanderson and you guys are going to love hearing from her. I want to share with you a little bit how this episode came about. To be honest with you, I've had a recent experience with a spiritual narcissist and I realized that this person was entering my energy field without my consent in an attempt to manipulate me. And unfortunately, this is commonplace in the spiritual world. Now, the one thing I wanna tell you right out of the gate is that nobody should have access to your energy without your explicit consent. Go write that on a piece of paper, make a little contract with yourself. Believe me, you will not regret it because if people are telling you that they're coming into your energy, that is unethical. So I'm just going to start with that and kind of set the table for this conversation because believe me, you are going to want to stay and listen all the way to the end. So Stacy, I would love for you to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Let us know who you are, what you do, where you're from, all of that wonderful stuff.
1: Okay, thank you so much. I was just listening so intently to your story and so, my name is Stacey Sanderson, I'm a psychotherapist, and uh, I live and work uh, not too far from Toronto in Ontario, Canada, and my niche area of expertise is in narcissism and narcissistic recovery, and I have also written a book on this subject, and many decades of research have happened about Chronic illness, personality pathology, narcissism, and a lot of focus on patterns of energy and power. And, and that is, is what I work in. And I'm also a survivor of narcissism myself. Parental, institutional, organizational. And my deconstruction story is that in the middle of all of my own journey when I was doing a lot of work on understanding, you know, what was feeding my energy and what was depleting it, what I discovered was that my place in the church and my relationship to the faith community, which is Christian, was draining me physically, mentally, spiritually. It it was not the space of a belonging that I so dearly wanted. And in fact, you know, the faith leader clearly did not want me there. And, you know, when my family so very obviously vacated the church, there was no conversation about that. You know, there was no question asked. There was no concern. There was no follow-up. And then the second part of my deconstruction story is all about shifting the way socioculturally we think about narcissism. And we, we are continually feeding this idea and turning it into something that it frankly is not and really coming back to an older, more Jungian way of understanding it and clearly delineating the difference between what is narcissism versus what is the full character pathology. So I thought those are the two parts to my story, but also a little bit of my driving why.
0: You brought up something that I've actually not really talked about much on this podcast, but in my opinion, I've seen a lot of churches do a lot of people wrong in how they exited. So much hurt could be prevented if Church leaders, if church members, knew how to let somebody go with grace and dignity. That's something that is always kind of mind-boggled me. Is like, why can't you guys just be kind and let them gracefully exit?
1: And, and to me, I think that when someone isn't speaking to you, their actions are, are communicating volumes. Right. So if someone leaves who, you know, is a, an elder, which I was, wow. a Sunday school teacher, and on the hiring committee, and there's not oh. a thank you even, right. to me that speaks volumes. Yes. Right? So what you're not telling me is telling me so much more.
0: Right? And that should be communicating a message to the congregation, That's when when I've seen church staff members leave because of either firing or laying off Mm -hmm. or anything like that. When there's deafening silence from one of the parties, that is a major red flag. I know for me, whenever I was fired for insubordination, which I always tell people that translates into we couldn't control you. So, whenever I ended up having to leave, they wanted me to sign an exit agreement and they would not give me my severance without it. And of course, I'm like, I'm not going to sign that document. So, you can keep your money, shove it up your butt mm-hmm. kind of situation. <laughs> but, like, that was that moment for me of like, this is unethical. This is not of God. Where is Jesus in this? It's just not there. But I guess let's get into this conversation because, boy, we could, like I said, we could talk all day long. (laughs) This (laughs) this is such a good topic. Narcissism is such a trendy topic right now. And I really do want to be careful with how we approach this because we can't just go around labeling people as narcissistic without a diagnosis. And you kind of, alluded to that in your introduction. Can you explain to our listeners what is narcissism, just so that we have a base understanding? So
1: we have to separate out what is narcissism as a human trait versus what is narcissistic personality disorder as a formal diagnosis.
0: Mm.
1: And so I talk about this all the time. And if we look at the language in the American Psychiatric Association diagnostic and statistical manual, that language is a shared language between psychiatry, psychology, and medicine. None of the rest of us, well, I guess I'm in that, in that camp, but <laughs> none of the rest of us need be using that language. And it has, because of, you know, the, the accessibility and availability of, of web-based resources, that information, in my opinion, has been used incorrectly. Ooh. And I am very outspoken about this. Even though I have narcissists in my life, I don't look at that and apply that criteria, right? If I had someone in the office, you know, I might do that but that information is also antiquated it's probably based on men it is probably based on white people cisgendered people it's it's out of date right narcissism itself if if we look at the truest sense of the word is on a spectrum and there's healthy narcissism there's unhealthy narcissism you know when people are Deeply, deeply embedded in their own story and in their own pain and in their own wound. There's a level of narcissism happening, right? It's, it's two sides of, of a coin in some way, with one side being that self absorption and the other side being if someone can't tolerate their pain and they project it out onto someone else. So I like talking about narcissism in the context of patterns that play out in our lives, you know, patterns of energy and power. But not so much on the traits someone has, because if we've been hurt by someone, we have a massive, massive confirmation bias thing going on, right? Everything goes through the lens of that pain. So can we say, talk about narcissism, and can we say someone is narcissistic? I think so. But we have to be careful, because now we instantly jump to the conclusion that that means... They have a personality disorder and it's a very, very low percentage of the population. Very interesting. So it's like like one in a hundred people have NPD, but one in five people is going to have narcissistic traits, is going to be a little higher in those personality
0: dimensions of narcissism. I love how you explained that. Thank you. I talk about it a lot. Well, th- th- that's that's evident. I, I really love that explanation because I, to a certain extent, I believe that we all have narcissistic traits, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is what separates from NPD. And that's why personally I, I try not to go around just calling people narcissistic. I have done a lot of research myself on this just because of some of my own trauma. I'm very thankful that I have not experienced narcissism in my family. Very, very thankful for that. I couldn't be more thankful for that. But I've experienced it in the church. I've experienced it in the workplace. (laughs) I've experienced it more in the workplace than I have anywhere. And that's unfortunate because workplace trauma exists and it makes it very hard for those of us that we have to keep working if we want to keep eating and paying our bills, you know. And so there's a lot of hurdles that we have to jump through from that end. So this is fantastic information. So what you're saying is that only one in 100 people have NPD, but one in five people displays narcissistic traits. So that tells me that narcissism is very common, at least from the trait perspective.
1: It is. It is. And we have to look at narcissistic personality disorder through the lens of impairment, and it's a mental illness. Wow. Right? Like, it is a mental illness. And it also it rarely is the standalone diagnosis. There often is depression, for example, that might go along with it, or trauma for sure, although not always. And it is, in my opinion, it's a developmental-based disorder. There is some type of of traumatic or not interference in the trajectory of someone's childhood development and they get stuck and the mechanisms of self-awareness and empathy are not developing correctly and thus they are impaired. Uh, It is recognized as such um, within medicine and psychiatry. People who are narcissistic, however, can do quite well in the world right? Uh, they tend to climb up ladders pretty quickly. And, and they're, you know, the 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 swagger, the confidence, the grandiosity, perhaps even delusional belief in their abilities can serve them really
0: well mm-hmm. in the world. Right? <laughs> in my experience in business, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> yes. So w- yes. So what are some red flags that just the general public can kind of look for of, you know, okay, maybe I don't want to enter into a relationship with this person, or maybe I don't want to work with this person.
1: They're different in different circumstances. I just did an interview yesterday about how to know if a potential friend is narcissistic. But these are people who will act like they're very interested in you, no matter what the relationship is. And what is going on with that is they're doing an evaluation, right? They are determining, can you be narcissistic supply for me? Like, are you going to feed my ego or are you someone I need to feel threatened by? And we all experience this, right? In job interviews, at parties you know, in social situations. Sometimes I see that in my work, although not often. They will come off as perhaps charming unless they're a bit more vulnerable and then they can present as being a bit withdrawn. They do not tolerate not being the center of attention, right? So they may talk over you, they may interrupt you and they will redirect the energy, the conversation, the attention back to themselves. They can't help it. I don't, it's not a conscious thing they're doing. People who have NPD as well as people who have narcissistic traits have some telltale physiological signs. You can see it in their body language. So there will be a slight tilt of the chin, right? They're literally trying to, like, move above everyone else. There can be some hostility that's apparent, and their tone of voice will change if you have said something that threatens them. Like, they don't tolerate criticism very well. So you will sense that. They can be remarkably mean, and I call that sniping. And they speak poorly of other people very early on in relationship. And what else would be another um, sign? And I think most of us, most of us sense their negative energy and have cognitive dissonance around what you feel And what they're presenting. And we can feel a bit confused. And in my experience, you also feel kind of icky after being around these people. Is the best way I can describe it. There's an ick factor. Mm -hmm. You'll go back, you'll be ruminating, you'll revisit the conversation, you will worry about what you've said. Those are all some preliminary signs to look for.
0: Those are great. Something I've experienced, and I have a feeling a lot of our listeners, if they've dealt with any kind of narcissistic abuse, we tend to turn off our intuition because we want to believe the best in people. What can you recommend in that regard?
1: Yeah. It, we don't just turn it off. If, if you're in a, in a trusted relationship with someone like this, they will early on start diminishing and dismissing whatever you're sensing intuitively and whatever you know to be true. Right. Mm -hmm. We all know the word that goes along with this, but it's important to be in your body. And what I mean by that is be grounded, work with your breathing, work with your breath, I guess you could say, and be aware of any inner activation for you that is matching the narcissist because these are people who are very highly emotionally activated all the time. They they walk around with very, very much a fight or flight response in their physiology. It's kind of like you're being with a hungry three-year-old all the time. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth in there's grains of truth in that analogy. So it's very important that, uh, the rest of us, or when you're in interaction, that you detach, right? Hold yourself in a place of compassion. Hold them in a place of compassion. I could talk about that a whole lot more. And take care of your energy, right? Yeah. Breathe. I mean, I do this so much now that I think I don't even hear them half the time, right? There's, you know, we all have them in our lives and I, I kind of, I block them out.
0: That's a gift. Right.
1: Now, oh, it took a long time to get there, right? Because the other gift is you feel everything that they're feeling, which is not good, yes. right? So you can notice, you know, if they're thinking poorly about you or, you know, if they feel that you're a threat, let yourself notice that, but then come back into that groundedness, that energy, right? That good energy, if you will, if I could use that language and really imagine, you know, your feet are connected to the floor and the earth beneath you. So grounding into. Like the earth's energy, right? Yes. Um and and any other little things that you use that help you to feel safe or feel grounded also are really helpful. And and those are unique to all of us.
0: I love that. I think for me, my nervous system gets dysregulated and I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Yes. That's that's a common flag for me. And whenever I get like that. That's when I have to kind of pull back and ask, okay, what are we dealing with here? Like, is this a me thing? Is this a them thing? Is it my energy? Is it their energy? If it's somebody else's energy, I'm always like, okay, your energy is your energy. My energy is my energy. I repeat that over and over until it feels like it releases.
1: I love that. I love the way you've put that. Yes. Odds are very good. It is theirs. and. You're receiving it, and thus you're having that response. Mm. And for anyone who's been through the trauma of any form of narcissistic abuse, you know, be it relational or institutional or communal, you will have that energetic blueprint, and you will have that defense mechanism. So it's a healthy thing, even though it doesn't feel good. But I love the way you talked about doing that beautiful self-inquiry Around what's going on here, right? So that you're coming back into, I'm just going to call it your own frame of reality, right? You're yeah. not getting pulled into theirs.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I love, I love this. What I'd really like to deep dive into now that we have a good understanding of narcissism in, in just a general area, what is the difference between regular narcissism and spiritual narcissism? Sure. It's interesting
1: because one of the things I want to mention is that spiritual narcissism can also be communal narcissism. And in psychology and psychiatry, we would refer to a communal narcissist. So someone who gets their ego supply, not from one person, but from many people, Ooh. right? From having a following
0: Well, that says a lot right there.
1: Yes. Yes. And this can happen very easily. The human ego is fragile enough, or most of us don't have that ego identity developed enough and grounded enough that, you know, we can be easily pulled into having our ego fed by having that type of audience. So, People who don't have narcissistic traits can be vulnerable to this, right? So I've done a lot of teaching, I've taught meditation, I've taught counseling skills, and y- y- you have to have a very strong boundary, you know, not to let that influence the way you think about yourself. So there's that part of it. And then there can be people who are spiritual narcissists who don't have all of the symptomology that would mean they have narcissistic personality disorder, then there are people who do have NPD who see themselves as being quite spiritual. It's You can get easily caught up in the semantics. What's relevant is the level of influence and danger that these people might have based on the severity of these traits, right? So I met someone recently who's narcissistic and sees themselves as being very spiritual. And I made the comment that, you know, my fear is that this individual could potentially start a cult. Wow. Right. He, it looked like it was moving in that direction. Right. But spiritual narcissism is very much about their, the individual spirituality feeding the grandiosity. For example, <laughs> I am better than you because I have a yoga practice. This is rampant in the yoga industry. Rampant. I am better than you because I pray every day. I am better than you because I sit in meditation for an hour a day. I am more important to you because I've been to this retreat, this ashram, you know, I belong to this faith community. So there's that level of it, the superiority complex of it and the grandiosity.
0: I think how this translates in Christianese is I serve more than you do. I'm on the worship team and I get to have a microphone every Sunday. Look at me. I am in charge of this department. That's how I have seen this spiritual narcissism show up in the church. A 100%. I've grown up in
1: a small country church, so I don't have that representation. But I have worked with people who've had those experiences, right? When, when really good people, you know, get frozen out because a toxic culture mm. develops within the church.
0: Yes. And that's the something we talk about is, a lot that, on here.
1: <laughs> yes. So religion and spirituality can also be a way that people excuse or detour around, you know, the things that they do are not that are not kind or not honest or that are illegal even, mm. right? And the other piece would be there's a lot being spoken about about this right now, but the idea that, you know, you can come to a place of awareness and enlightenment that means that, you know, you've not you're not mortal anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. People can think they're more aligned with their spirituality. That's all ego based stuff. Right. That, you know, psychologically, that's the ego. And it can be a way of really bypassing painful, painful realities as well. So using faith, spirituality, mysticism even as an escape hatch. Right. Wow. So that can happen too. And then there's the, the element of people being, you know, feeling so enlightened that they feel they have to then share that with other people, but they do so with some significant blind spots with a lack of humility, for example, or a lack of self-awareness. And I also think spiritual narcissism. Is when you think that your faith is better than someone else's.
0: You're not wrong there.
1: So where I sit here in Peterborough is is right out here is the Atonaby River. And for, you know, hundreds of years, all of the Catholics were on this side, on the east side, and all of the Protestants were on the west side, literally, because of this thinking right? I did not meet a Catholic person until I went to university. Wow. You know what I mean? Someone who practices Catholicism. Right. That's another example of that, right? And I've heard this so many times, right? I went to Catholic school or I went to Christian school. So that's another example of that because it is, it's grandiose. It it creates exclusivity and it's so much pain.
0: The Christianese comparison to that would be You know, I was raised in the Church of God, which is a Pentecostal denomination. Yes, and I remember from a very early age hearing people in my life, because most of my family is pastors, being like, "Well, Baptists aren't good because they don't speak in tongues." Oh yeah, like that is a spiritual superiority complex in a lot of ways. And I mean, I've been discriminated against. I don't speak in tongues, and I'm like. That's stupid. Not that speaking in tongues is stupid. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you discriminating against me because I do not speak in tongues. That does not make you more spiritual than me. That does not make you closer to God than I am. And that's that spiritual narcissistic trait. I can't deal with that in the church. hmm
1: hmm And this happens in all different sectors of spiritual practice. Right. Right. And this used to happen where I worked, where, you know, one person's meditation teacher was better than someone else's meditation teacher. And, it you know, it just goes on and on and on. But it is that underneath all of that is a deep rooted insecurity and void of real spiritual connection. Mm. Right. All of that stuff is masking, you know, a significant deficit in self-awareness and empathy and compassion and humanity and in you know a real genuine connection to your spiritual life.
0: I love the way that you framed that. So what is the best way to remove yourself from a toxic situation when we're dealing with narcissistic spiritual abuse because like we talked about earlier, you know, leaving a church is not always easy. Or leaving even a spiritual practice, if you are in a group or a community of people, I know people that have been in spiritual cults, like twin flame cults that yes. you know, generally whenever it's a cult, it's kind of hard to leave. They make it that way. <laughs> so what's the best way to go about this?
1: That's such a big question because there are two part there are two aspects of that or two layers to that. And one is, I think, self-awareness and, and becoming aware of the level of which the level to which rather you've experienced cognitive dissonance and when you've been manipulated and when you have lost your center when you have lost your authentic identity right I'll use those words and your what you know to be true about yourself so this is true for any narcissistic relationship any of them because situationally or in relationship, that's one of the first things that happens is you're questioned, right? Not even sometimes even verbally, but it happened. So that's a first step and becoming an, an, and then starting to um, look after yourself in a very holistic way. So, you know, do you need physical help? Like, do you need energy work or do you need to be taking care of yourself? Do you need psychotherapy to help or, or coaching even to help you reframe what you've experienced? Do what it is helpful to do anything that for you regenerate your energy and feeling connected to spirit and authenticity. So that's different for different people. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be prayer. That could be, you know, a circle of support. It could be meditation, it could be yoga, it could be being in nature, right? Any of those things. I actually, on purpose, go for a very long run during the same time I would have been in church. Oh, most people in my church know that. I'll go out for my run around the same time and just be in nature and, you know, connect to my heart sometimes more than others. And the, the other important piece of this is to, to find a level of compassion for yourself and that person or that organization or that community, because compassion is very empowering. When we are focused on how someone has harmed us, and we're ruminating about that, and we're losing sleep over that, and we're losing our energy over that, we're also giving our power away. When we can stand in a place of compassion... You know, seeing that we're all in the same boat and no one is better than us or smarter, right? Or more powerful. It's a great balancing of that power and energy, right? So it takes a little practice because most of us didn't learn it, right? Ironically. But when we see that we have wounds and they have wounds and we can be okay and they can be okay, that can really help to be a corrective experience, right? And it's a helpful practice if you land into self-compassion meditation or journaling or whatever you need. And then something we talked about earlier is self-inquiry, that little check-in around, you know, am I, what's going on for me? What's happening in my body? And am I giving my power away in this situation? So any and all of those things. And I would also say it's important to do a debriefing. And a debriefing is really different than therapy. Because a debriefing is where you get to tell your story and no one is evaluating, right? No one is, is factoring in anything that's going on with you. And like a, you could call that a crisis debriefing or a trauma debriefing. Mm-hmm. But, um, I have now, I'm trained in that and I've integrated it into my regular, you know, practice because I think it's so key. You have to have a compassionate witness to what you've experienced and you need to be believed in order to help mitigate any trauma you've experienced.
0: I love that. That is something that I think is missing in the church because everything gets swept under the rug when it comes to spiritual abuse in the church. And I know for me personally, things would have been so much different had I been heard out. When I talk about my experiences with sexual harassment in the church, I just wish somebody would have listened. I went to the board, they didn't listen. In fact, they turned it back on me. What did you do to bring this upon yourself? You know, having somebody to compassionately listen could have mitigated years of trauma and recovery. And that's something that is not addressed. This is something that honestly, I'm gonna be dedicating my life to in my advocacy work is this is something that needs to be heard across the world. Whether it's, the, yeah, like, whether it's in the church or whether it's in any other institution. You know, people just need to be heard, seen, heard, and felt like somebody cared. That could go such a long way. And I love what you're talking about with debriefing. Whenever it comes to somebody coming out of one of these situations, what does that healing and recovery look like whenever they've experienced this abuse on such a deep level?
1: That's so interesting because the words that just went through my head are they find their way back to themselves and they find their way back to God Mm -hmm. or to spirit, right? So that's a part of it. I think it's working through a lot of as I said, cognitive dissonance, when, you know, we believe something and we see something else. And it's a lot of working through any negative beliefs you have about yourself, right? A lot of reframing that negative inner monologue that you carry from these situations, because most people will genuinely feel like they've done something wrong and, and will take the, you know, take the fall for it. So it's, you know, it's reframing and healing those layers of blame and shame, right? That yeah. people carry, you know, we, you know, we get shame for not going to church. We get shame for going to church, you know, and so working through that shame, shame is weaponized in so many ways. And also, I think developing a comfort level with being alone, right? There's a healing in that because isolation and loneliness can very much be weaponized in these situations. So you have to heal along those lines. And then ideally, you know, you come to create a community that that feels safe and where you have that sense of belonging and where you have that corrective experience. And then you can also do, you know, some type of ritual, a cord-cutting ritual, a forgiveness ritual. Meditation practice will work for that as well, like a loving-kindness practice. And prayer, right, if that's part of your practice as well. So you're really looking at healing this quite holistically and also, you know, building a community around you of like-minded souls. That's easier said than done, but
0: it's important. That's something that I hear a lot in the deconstruction community is that a lot of people have a hard time leaving the church because that is their community. And mm-hmm. so whenever they leave, it's like, well, what now? You know, I lost my family. I lost my friends. I lost my community community and now i'm here all alone but the reframe there is there's a little bit more safety there and it gives you permission to go and seek out a new community that embraces you for who you are and loves you regardless of whether you sin or not or you know whatever criteria the spiritual world wants to put on you one final thought from my experience After dealing with narcissistic abuse, the most important thing that I had to do for me was learn how to trust myself again. And that's, uh, that's something, especially when we're dealing with religious trauma and spiritual abuse, we have been manipulated so much that we don't know what's them and what's us. Yes. And so... That's hard. It's taken me probably two years to get to the point where it's like, you know what? I'm going to trust my intuition. I'm going to trust my body. I like it's taken me that amount of time to even just get reacquainted with the idea of trusting my body. And what could you share with our listeners about that?
1: It's interesting because I was thinking for every deconstruction, there has to be a reconstruction. Mm hmm. Right. And so w- when I am working with people who've been through these experiences, it is a lot of recovery, right? What did you love as a child? What are you passionate about? You cannot underestimate the power of joy in this process, right? So, you know, if, if, if you've been in this sort of low energetic vibration, and you are trying to trust yourself again, that process goes a whole lot better if you elevate up into a place of at least contentment, peace, joy. So in that higher energetic vibration, the truth is going to come to you, right? So people look at me funny when I talk about this, but it's vital. You have to connect into... Your heart in that way or the, you know, the energy center of your heart with joy. That's what it means. Right. So that's a big part of it. And also when you have glimmers of truth, you write them down. Right. I mean, my glimmers of truth turned into a psychotherapy practice, a YouTube channel and a book, <laughs> but they're all in there. Right. So it's, it's, it's all there and, and, and it's a quieter voice, Erin. Our truth, our authenticity is always quieter than the the negative messages that we've internalized. So listen to that quieter voice, if that makes
0: sense. Oh, yes. That is a very, very good word for all of us. Listen to the still, small voice in the back of our heads. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Be still and know, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, Stacey, I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for being here. How can our listeners find you and connect with you?
1: Oh, sure, it's been my pleasure to be here and to, to hear a bit of your story and to, to share a bit of mine. The easiest place to get me is, is my website, stacysanderson.ca. And on all of my social platforms, it is Stacey Sanderson at inquire within are the, are the
0: tags great I will will make sure to put all of your information in the show notes and we'll put a link to your book as well because I have a feeling that that's really going to impact a lot of people so thank you again I really appreciate this conversation and for those of you listening please go to the show notes check Stacy's stuff out because as you can tell she knows her stuff and man this conversation was so needed So thank you again. Thank you for listening. We will catch you in the next episode. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Touchy Subjects podcast. If you would like more information about what we do and who we are and how you can get involved, check out our website, www.letstalktouchysubjects.com. You can also find us on Instagram at... Let's Talk Touchy Subjects. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode.